Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. It's Wednesday, and this is Amy Gunn, and I am joined today by my colleagues Mary Simon, Elizabeth McNulty, Liz Lenovey, and Erica Slater. Today we are talking about jury selection or voir dire part two. Hopefully you guys have had the opportunity to listen to our first episode on this topic where we focused on logistics and process and really trying to visualize yourself doing a voir dire by going to court, having the pretrial. We talked about note-taking and how to argue motions for cause and filling out your chart or your grid and that types of things. So if you haven't already listened to that, it's not imperative that you do to listen to this part two, but it might be helpful. We all want to talk today about actually doing a voir dire and the questions that we would ask and really understanding the reason why we're asking the questions and really importantly, how to listen and respond to the answers that are being given by the jury so you can properly assess whether they're gonna be right for your case. The whole point of voir dire is to deselect jurors, to find the ones who are not gonna be fair to your case, whether they know it or not. And the best way that I can explain how to do that is really just to go back. Here's how I prepared for today's episode. I printed out my last Fardir. I know you might think, well, you had to print it out. I mean, don't you just wing it? No, I do not. I do not wing anything. I'm hoping that people think it looks like I'm winging it, but I do not wing anything. Now, that said, I have my Fardir. It's going to be in front of me. I'm going to have questions written out, but I'm not going to be constantly staring at it. I'm going to be looking at large bullet points and large print for my old eyes to read, but it's certainly not going to be anything that I have to look down at. I also want people to feel comfortable talking in that setting. It's kind of a formal setting, sitting in a courtroom with a judge and juries, people all around you, bailiffs sitting there. So I always want to make the jury feel comfortable. And this is where being yourself and being authentic really helps. If you come off that way, then juries are going to talk to you. And that's what you have to do. I tell people why we're here. It's to select people that are right for this case. I tell them how they can be right for this case by even though everyone who's in the courtroom that day has life experiences that give them certain perspectives on life and on a lot of important issues, we're here today to find out what of those opinions, what of those experiences disqualify someone from sitting on this case. I always like visuals, so I will have my hands in front of me, even, and I will tip the scale one way or the other, and I will explain that in order for this process to work, in order for the civil jury trials in the United States of America to work, the people who are judging the case have to come into it 
with no evidence on either side. So those scales of justice, and sometimes you're lucky enough to have either Lady Justice in the courtroom somewhere on a seal, or who knows, sometimes the judge has it on the dais, you'll see that she's blindfolded and her scales are even. And that means that there's no evidence in either scale to tip the case one way or the other for one party or the other. And I find that people really are like, okay, that's a visual. I understand why that's important because you invoke the United States of America, you invoke lady justice and the dais and the seal and the judge and all this stuff. Because just walking in and saying, you know what, folks, this is really important. It's really, really important. I mean, okay, a lot of things are important. Their doctor's appointment at noon is important, all kinds of things. And so you really have to make it bigger, make them a part of a bigger process for the search for truth and justice. So I do that <laughs> a little bit. And then I say, you know, it's okay. A lot of people don't feel comfortable speaking in front of a crowd. But today I just need you to listen carefully and feel free to speak your mind. It really is something that I want you to feel comfortable with. And honestly, if there's something that you're just not comfortable saying out to the whole group, just raise your hand and we'll let the judge decide if you can come up and talk to us privately. So another thing that I try to say is to give it some context is to tell the jury, picture yourself, you're a Cubs fan or you're a Cardinals fan. So of course we're in St. Louis, so most people are gonna be Cardinals fans, but you get the occasional Cubs fan. And I say, let's say that you are the umpire for the Cardinals-Cubs game, and you're chosen to do that, and you've been a lifelong Cardinals fan. And if you are the Cubs, do you really want you to be the umpire that day? Someone who has, maybe you believe with all your heart that you can be fair, but if you're the Cubs, do you really think that's going to be a problem. And so you kind of give it some context that way because everyone's going to have a sports team or something that they've loved their whole life that they can relate to. So I spend a good five minutes or so, kind of like what I've already done here today, trying to explain the importance of it and to give some real life context to what it means to be fair in this setting. So then what I like to do is start out kind of simple, which includes things like, okay, everybody, here are the parties in this case. Here's the judge and list the judge's name, the lawyers. But I also then ask if anybody knows each other. And Liz, I'm going to throw this to you because I know that you and I have done these Vardiers where I ask that question. Why do I ask that question? Well, you want to know if the jurors know each other, because let's say two jurors that know each other make it onto the final panel, that they could influence each other's vote. I've seen this before where one juror says, oh, you know, that's my neighbor, and I, I trust this person, and I have gone to them for advice, and I think they're really smart. And the natural follow-up is, okay, great. So if you and your neighbor, Mr. Jones, both make it onto the jury and you're leaning one way and he's leaning the other, are you going to look to him for advice and are you going to change your vote based on what Mr. Jones says? And, and we want to make sure that that potential influence doesn't happen and vice versa. 
he could say, yeah, that's my neighbor and he's a terrible person. And we've been having a feud for the last 15 years. And if we're on that jury panel, well, I'm going to vote the opposite of him just out of spite. And so you want to make sure that when you have that final room of 12, that these are truly objective, neutral people who, in addition to not having any opinions on the case, don't have any opinions about each other. Exactly. I have found that asking if anybody knows anybody else, almost every single time I've done a voir dire, somebody knows somebody. And that's especially true in in smaller counties. So you really do want to flesh that out a little bit. Okay. So what are some big categories that are really meaty as far as getting the folks talking about their experiences? I did the same thing you did, Amy, and brought up my last Fort Iyer. But as far as uh, when you know you need to set up a juror to strike them for cause, a really good way to think about it is to start with open-ended questions about their bias and then shift to close-ended questions. And that sounds kind of general, but, you know, open-ended questions. Tell me more about that. What have you read about that? Have you done any research on that? How do you feel about that? How have you heard about that? Kind of just those quick things to keep them talking. And then when you switch to close-ended questions, you're asking, how long have you felt that way? And you wouldn't want to set aside that belief or you wouldn't be in a position to set aside that belief. The way my brain works is like, get all the chatter out and then close it up so you have something concrete to show the judge as far as being able to take the whole context of what these people are saying to strike them for cause. Do you think that as a general rule of thumb in Vordire, that if the lawyer's talking more than the potential jurors, it's not going well? Like Eric, it almost sounds like for you with the open-ended, you're opening the floor to a safe space for someone to completely be as honest as they want. When you start saying, tell me about that. What have you read about that? You know, how did you form that opinion? And in context, they may say, well, I heard about one trial where they gave a hundred million dollars and there's no way I would ever give a hundred million dollars. And that's what you need to know. Because if your case is worth a hundred million dollars and it might be, <laughs> okay, let's say 10 and Don't make it more realistic. But that juror has admitted that they have an upper limit in their mind, which is leading to a situation where you don't follow the law. I mean, if you're talking about a case where 100 million people have been damaged in a class, those damages may make sense. Everybody gets a buck. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that doesn't seem unreasonable. <laughs> Another key method for jury selection that I find to be very efficient when you have such a large group of people in front of you is sometimes talking a little bit about yourself and something that to a potential juror for your case might seem like a bad thing, but by you introducing the topic, it lightens the fear of someone bringing it to the table. For example, I know that in my family, my huge extended family, there are some folks who are healthcare providers or 
people who don't believe in pain and suffering. They just don't. And that that's just what their stance is on it. And I have no problem bringing that to the table to open the door to someone to share that same opinion or relate to it or talk about it versus me presenting myself in a way that's a plaintiff's lawyer only, everyone gets damages only, I'm here to get money only, I can't see anything any other way. It makes it more approachable for someone to look at me and think, oh, she already knows that 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 mindset exists and that people think that way and she's not mad about it. That just reminds me that oftentimes I will throw my mother in and I will say, you know, my mom tends to be a little bit on the conservative side when it comes to <laughs> damages or whatever it is. And I think you're so right, Mary, because you're allowing them to feel that way and you're encouraging them. I mean, I obviously love my mother and I'm close with my mother and if you present it to the jury, like even my mom thinks this, anybody else? And then you're going to be way more comfortable to say, oh, well, you know, if Amy's mom feels that way, then it can't be bad. So I'm going to raise my hand. If you say, on the other hand, who thinks that, you know, $100 million is too much? Or like people are going to be like, I don't, I don't think I understand what that means. Or that seems like a lot, but I don't know how to respond to that. So again, it's about encouraging that. And to the question of if the lawyer's talking too much, Definitely, that's a problem. This is one of the times where you just have to set that aside and be a good listener. So if someone says, I do have a problem with excessive damages and verdicts, then Erica, you're totally right. The next thing you say is, tell me about that. Why do you feel that way? And then how long have you felt that way? Was it anything in particular in your life? And now you're there telling a story and you're writing it all down and your note takers are writing it all down in red ink. And they're saying this is a problem because they feel like there should be a upper limit on damages. Then after you hear that person's story and you kind of get that all figured out, and then you just say, who else feels like Mrs. Jones? And then you get a ton more people because now she's sort of normalized it. And before you know it, you've got a lot of people saying, yeah, I think there's too many damages. I think there are outrageous verdicts. And yeah, I think there should be an upper limit. Something that Mary, your comment made me think of, and Amy, I've seen you do it in your sort of opening presentation, is an explanation to the jury that we're looking for biases, but bias is not a dirty word in this context. When people hear the word bias, it immediately sounds like you're being unfair, you're not a good person, it's some sort of moral judgment on you. And that is not what that means at all within a jury selection situation. In fact, we want to know your biases. And I've seen it where when someone has come out and said very openly, I don't believe in lawsuits, I think that y'all are ambulance chasers and this is terrible, I shouldn't have to be here. And I've seen it where the, the plaintiff's lawyer responds, thank you so much for being honest. Right. You, know, you and I disagree, but I appreciate your honesty. That is what we're here for. And the jury, before they start answering the questions in selection, they take an oath to tell the truth during the selection. The, the judge swears everyone in at the same time. And so I think it's really important that when someone comes at you, and it, sometimes it feels a little bit hostile, oh, but yeah. when they come at you with honesty and have given you the perfect ammunition to get them off that panel, 
thank them. Acknowledge the fact that they are doing exactly what you have asked them to do, exactly what the court has asked them to do. And I think that that attitude also encourages other panel members to come forward and be honest as well. That's exactly right. And just for purposes of our listeners to also give some context to these points, let's just assume it's a MedMal case. You found a potential juror who does feel comfortable sharing their opinion on whatever topic you're asking about. Are you controlling every single question by asking them a question, then, you know, a show of hands to the rest of you who feel that way? Or are you also looking at the facial expressions thinking, oh, you know, you just laughed when he said that. Why are you laughing? So is it too aggressive to point that out because then people will be afraid to show their emotions? Or how do you handle that, Amy? I do both. Oftentimes I will ask for hands, but I've also registered in my mind that Mr. Jones, you know, three seats over, two rows back is agreeing, aggressively nodding or whatever nonverbal signal. And if it's obvious like that, you can't let that go because that person may not be comfortable speaking. They may not want you to know. They may want to stay on the jury. I mean, who knows? But I will sometimes say, you know, and you can do it in a super nice, friendly way. Hey, Mr. Jones, I saw you nodding. What are you, what do you want to say? You know, like, come on, we all know what you want to say, just say it. And almost always you get what you want to hear. And then once people start talking, it's funny because sometimes they just don't want to stop. And if you find Mr. Jones, use Mr. Jones, go back to Mr. Jones, because if Mr. Jones doesn't like damages, Mr. Jones probably also doesn't like the burden of proof. Mr. Jones probably also doesn't like lawsuits ever, you know, so he might be your go-to Because someone else might think damages are okay, but they don't appreciate the burden of proof. So truthfully, he is doing what you need him to do. It's just so dissatisfying to have to hear it. It's so important. I think that's exactly the right way to go. And then I really want someone to talk about getting bad stuff out first early on in the case. I I think we might have even talked about that when we talked about openings, but I'm curious to hear how any one of you has handled that in jury selection? One, you have to include it. Include your worst stuff. I'll share with you a story. We were trying a three-week huge product liability trial in the city of St. Louis, and I was on the trial team. And the lawyer who was doing Vordire, he was concerned because our client had a, I think it was a burglary or a robbery charge from like 10 years ago or something. And he wanted to desensitize the jury to the idea that, you know, this guy had a criminal record. So he said something along the lines of, now, does anybody have a problem with it if my client has been convicted of child molestation. <laughs> and like the, the panel was just like wide-eyed oh, and gosh. frozen. And he went to like two people and got their opinion on that. And it was exactly what you think it was. And then he said, well, good. Because he wasn't charged with child molestation, but he does have a burglary charge from about a decade ago. So... <laughs> Who here has a problem with that? No Um, hands. And I mean, like, crazy, brilliant, 
you know, he's really desensitizing the jury. Talk about framing. Yeah. So part of the goal is to desensitize the jury. But the other part of the goal is to not hide from those things. If you have a bad fact in your case or, you know, there's some bad attributes to your client that are coming out, you have to talk about those up front because you need to identify the jurors who are genuinely going to have a problem with that. And that's even the time where you can bring in, you know, Amy says she brings in her mom. I usually bring in my conservative dad. (laughs) And, you know, when I'm talking to someone about their feelings about that, I try to keep him talking by saying, you know, I talked to my dad about that. He feels the same way. Tell me more about that. Because you never, ever, ever want to change their mind or get defensive on behalf of your client. They are doing you a favor to identify themselves. And that, to me, I think is the most difficult part of Vordire is getting someone to speak up and identify themselves in the way you need them to so you can do what you need to do to get them off if that's appropriate. I have a question about focusing cases. And if you do that, if you're able to kind of glean anything from focus groups or even if you ever try out some of your Vordire questions with the focus groups and how that ends up influencing what you do during jury selection? Well, our firm tried a case, I guess it's been about five years ago at this point, but it was the first opioid overprescription case against a doctor. So the first medical malpractice case involving allegations of opioid overprescription. That also happened in the city of St. Louis. And of course, I mean, I, I like flitted around that trial as much as I could. And I remember part of what the team was doing in developing Vordire questions for that case is we were focusing a lot of concepts knowing that our client was addicted to the opioids he was prescribed. And if anyone listening has ever had any experience or come in contact with someone who is drug addicted, it is a terrible, terrible road. If you have a case that you can identify a theme like that, that can be so familiar to people. It is imperative to talk about that in voir dire because number one, you're already talking about your case. You're giving some facts about the case and you're having people really buy into the facts of your case as at the same time that you're having them talk about their potential interest and bias. That's a win-win for certain. I had a similar situation a number of years ago where John and I were trying a railroad crossing case. And these cases have been tried by the same defense attorneys a lot. And so I had read some voir dires from the defense attorneys. And we knew in that case, the defense was, they believed that our plaintiff had run the gates or the lights or whatever, and had done that ignoring all the signals. And so the defense in that case was that our client had ignored all the warnings at the crossing and had driven on anyway and got hit by a train. So I'm reading the voir dire and they always say, how many people here learned in elementary school to stop, look, and listen? You know, and everybody's like, oh yeah, I learned that. Everybody knows stop, look, and listen. And so what the defense did in the voir dire was get people to believe, well, if this happened, This had to be because this person did not stop, did not look, and did not listen. And the voir dire that I did, because we get to go first, 
I took it over. And I said, how many people here, when they were in elementary school, learned that you need to stop, look, and listen? And I looked over and the defense attorney looked up like, what's happening here? That's my line. That's my line. <laughs> and, and I could tell he's like, where are you going with this? I said, okay, great. And that's important. And you learned that as a child and you remember it today, right? Yes. Well, how many people think it's important when you do stop and you do look that you should see something if a train is coming? And they're like, well, yeah, it's the whole point of looking. And how many people believe that if you do stop and listen, you should hear some warnings, some bells ringing, something, something. Because our story was that none of the warnings were working, that the crossbars didn't come down, that the bells weren't working, and that there was nothing to see because the foliage was blocking their ability to actually see the train. And it was nothing that they could hear because there were no bells and if you've got your windows up, you're not necessarily going to hear the train from however many feet away. So everybody was expecting to, if you're going to buy in to stop, look, and listen, if you don't stop, look, and listen, it's going to be your fault. You better prove that there was something to see and there was something to hear. And so that was the issue of the case. And I remember being very satisfied <laughs> after that. So what, what happened when the defense stood up to do their... <laughs> Selection. I'm just, what was their well, first question? Uh, everything she just said uh, sounds pretty good. Well, you know, sometimes it's hard to pivot when you feel like you've had, you know, what Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the nose or punched sure. in the face. So sometimes you just stick to the plan and people are looking at him like, we've already talked about this. Why are we talking about this again? The other thing that I have seen before that I think is a great jumping off point if we're talking about themes that people know about or you can relate it is hot coffee okay oh, because no oh, man now i know this is a number of years ago now but i don't I, I don't think i've ever picked a jury where hot coffee doesn't come up where someone doesn't volunteer well i mean you know i'm sure there are okay cases but then you think about hot coffee and i remember when i was doing a voir dire earlier on it may have even been this railroad case I had worked hard on learning about the actual facts of hot coffee, like all of us has, you know, which it was a really legitimate verdict. And McDonald's had so many other similar incidents of terrible burns from their hot ass coffee and did nothing about it. So I knew that, and I am not proud of this, but you live and learn. Some guy talked about hot coffee and I like challenged him. And I was like, do you know the facts of that case? And he's kind of <laughs> like, no. You know? <laughs> what if I told you blah, 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 but that's my instinct, you know, to advocate and to fight with these people and try to change their minds. And the answer is no, I should have said, sir, thank you for bringing that up. Who else thinks all lawsuits are terrible and that no one deserves anything and whatever it is, or tell me more about what you think about hot coffee. So much of this has been emphasized on how to get people to open up and how to get people to talk. But a problem that I have run into a couple of times, and I've seen other people run into, is when a juror won't shut up. When they have already said something that is going to get them knocked off the panel, you know that person is never going to make it onto the panel because they said that, I don't believe in lawsuits, or I hate all doctors, or whatever. They're never going to make the panel. But they always volunteer when you throw out a question to the panel. How do you without making everyone else think that you're a giant jerk, get that person to stop talking. 
It just reminds me of a classroom and being like, okay, why don't we give someone else a try? <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you, it can be done if I don't want to use that person as the jumping off point for someone else to say, yes, me too, me too. Then I say, Mr. Jones, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I don't typically interrupt, but sometimes I'll kind of glance at the judge and the judge will help out. But oftentimes if I won't even call on them anymore, if the hand's up, I'll just kind of not see it and not call on them anymore. Or I'll say, Mr. Jones, I appreciate that. I understand where you're coming from. Or basically like, hey, dude, I got it. I got it. But at least at first, you can almost always utilize that to get other people on board with what bad stuff Mr. Jones is saying. So what will you do in the opposite situation where it's been a couple hours, you have a pretty good idea of where most people are at with the panel, but there's always that one or one or two people who just have the most incredibly bored look on their face and they've just been sitting there and you have absolutely no way to tell what they're thinking one side or the other. Erica, how do you handle that situation? When I was first clerking at our firm, one of the women who was working with Amy at the time, I was at the trial and she was doing her first voir dire. And first of all, the most amazing thing is how comfortable she looked because we knew it was her first one. She had that situation and the way she responded to it, I've used several times. There was someone who was within, you know, striking distance. So you wanted to hear from them, not someone at the very back of the panel that you didn't think you'd get to. And she just said, you know, Mrs. Smith, we've been going for a couple hours. I haven't heard from you at all. What do you think about these things we've been talking about? She did it really naturally and easy, and she might have even said, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I want to hear from you too. And she did call her out in a really approachable way. And it was great because <laughs> this woman was like, well, that guy said that, and that doesn't make sense because X, Y, and Z. She just needed an invite. So when I've had one or two people on the panel like that, I've kind of used that real easy, like, hey you've been sitting here listening to all this. What do you think about what we've been talking about? And that's kind of a nice intro too, because they're going to bring up the thing that's top of mind because you know, they've been sitting there thinking about what they might say if they were asked or whatever. I was at a trial, Erica, shortly after I was licensed. And I remember my dad conducted the jury selection and I can still almost picture where this guy was sitting near the front left and he hadn't said a word the whole time. And, and I remember he was not giving my dad anything. My dad tried the friendly, what do you think about this kind of a shoulder shrug. So I, I remember thinking, oh, this guy really doesn't want to talk. It's almost uncomfortable because they have this dialogue where my dad will say something, he'll shrug. My dad will say something, he shrugs two times, you know, and eventually <laughs> they just were both laughing with each other and he eventually opened up, but it did take a couple minutes. You do have to get over that just to know what I'm, my job here is to make sure I don't stop talking to this person until I have a really good read on what they think about what's going on. <laughs> and I just want to say here, Wadir has so many elements to it. And we've just touched on a few today. 
you know, our firm, the Simon Law Firm, has another podcast actually called The Jury Is Out. And The Jury Is Out had five full, complete episodes on voir dire. So you can also check out that podcast if you want to learn a little bit more. And Amy, we were talking about what to do if a potential juror hasn't said much. And I want to kind of pose that question to you. How do you get the silent juror to talk? It's funny because at the end of the voir dire, it almost always happens where you do have someone who, even sometimes at the end of the defense voir dire, you do have someone who really hasn't said anything. So you're looking at your grid and there, there's no information. And so everybody's like, well, this person must be fine. And it couldn't be further from the truth. So I've had that before. I'm like, how did this person not say a word after three hours of voir dire? So you have to be aware of that. And that's a great time to, right before you're done, kind of talk to your note taker and be like, is there anybody else? And one of the techniques I use is just to kind of go through the list of almost everybody real quickly and say something like, now it looks like Ms. Jones, you're an engineer. Tell me about that. Or how long have you worked there? Some simple question with a simple answer. And that way the person, number 10, who hasn't said anything, I'm going to ask that same question to number 10, and he or she doesn't feel totally left out. But you stop on number 10 and you say, Mr., you know, number 10, it looks like you work at Schnooks. How long have you worked there? Or it looks like you work in an accounting firm. Tell me about that. And then you say, I've seen you kind of nodding your head a little bit. Is there anything that you've heard today that you want to tell me about? How do you feel about A, B, or C? And again, that's that invite that some people need. So it does feel a little more natural. And then really sometimes if all you really wanted to talk to is number 10, then you can stop asking your employment questions, you know, because all you were really trying to do is get to 10 and no one's going to even remember that you didn't. One of the topics I think you have to cover that again is full of responses typically is the burden of proof. And we referenced it earlier, but I want to spend another moment on it. I always say, you know, as the plaintiffs, we bring the lawsuit and we have the burden of proof. And I try to define more likely than not preponderance of the evidence. I get my scales out again, my little handy dandy hand scales. And I explain that preponderance of the evidence is just a slight tipping of the scale. It's just a slight tipping of the scale. And Liz, I loved your sports analogy from our last one, which is, you know, I just have to make it to the 50. I don't have to make it all the way to the 100 yard line in football, just to the 51. Is anybody having a problem with that? That's a great one. And you'd be surprised at how many people, particularly in a medical malpractice case, how many people have trouble with only being convinced by a preponderance of the evidence it's just almost a gut reaction because, well, I don't know anything about medicine. I feel like you should really have more proof, a more robust proof, but you don't. So who here, you know, I set it up like that. Who here has concerns about that? And you always get hands. And it's great because there's no arguing that. That is bedrock law for tort cases, negligence cases. And if someone says, I just don't think that's enough, then you should be done. You should be done. That person should, you've got your big C for cause on your grid. But I also do that with my hands for reasonable doubt. And I, I have like their way out of line, just barely tipped out of line for preponderance and way out of line for reasonable doubt. How many people think that in order to be 
convinced that this doctor was negligent and caused my clients these injuries, you have to be convinced closer to beyond a reasonable doubt. And you'd be surprised at how many people really believe that. So you have to do that as a, if you're doing plaintiff's work. I also want to talk about rehab because this bugs me. When you've done your job, you try to do it in a very subtle way to get people to commit that they're not right for this case, the scales are tipped, whatever you've used to get people on board to basically say they're not right for this case. And I make that very clear. Doesn't mean you're wrong. It means you're not the right person for this case. Maybe two doors down, you'll be right for that case, but just not for this case. So again, you're not making them feel bad about themselves. But the defense will always get up and spend half of their time trying to rehab the juror that you have gotten off for cause or gotten them to say things to get them off for cause. And they'll say things like, well, you know, the judge, the judge and point to the judge is going to read you the law in this case. Are you saying you can't follow the law? And then they're like, oh man, no, I'm not saying that. Are you saying you can't be fair? Oh no, I'm not saying that. And that's a problem. So what I've tried to do lately is get ahead of that. And so when I have someone committed to, they can't follow the preponderance of the evidence, or they could never give however many damages or whatever you've gotten them on. I say to them now, Miss Jones, I suspect that Mr. Defense Attorney is going to ask you some more questions about this. And can you tell me that the things you've told me that make you uncertain about whether you could be right for this case or, or disqualify you for this case or whatever soft language we want to use, that you're going to say the same thing to him, what you just said to me? And you almost get a pact with that person and they always say yes. And that way they're ready for it. And not only that, but even if they do say yes, to be fair, whatever it is, you still have a real strong argument for cause in front of the judge. And at the end, kind of preempt the rehab argument in each particular juror at the very end, before I say, thank you, I'm going to sit down. I bring it up again. I say, now, ladies and gentlemen, the defense attorney is going to get up. And he's going to ask you some questions and ask you if you can be fair. Now, you took an oath and you've been talking to me for a couple hours now. And you've told me what you really feel in your heart about these things. Isn't that right? And everybody's kind of nodding and that they're ready for it. You have to, you have to arm these jurors so they don't just crumble under this. Can you be fair? Oh, sure, I can be fair. Because you could lose cause easily that way. So you have to get ahead of it. Has anybody else had that experience? I have. And actually, I was trying a case with another attorney in our office, and he did a really nice job of explaining, this is the last opportunity. I'm going to get to talk to you all before we're going to pick our final panel. And this is really important to all the parties involved. And so I need you all to, to commit to the answers you have given me. And when Mr. Defense Attorney gets up here, remember that commitment you have made. You frame it as a way of saying, can you make me this promise? We've built this relationship over the last five hours or, or what have you. Please, please make me this promise. And, and most people are willing to do that. I know we've been talking for quite some time now about different strategies and important items to hit or issues to hit when conducting jury selection. But 
how do you know when you're done? When is it time to sit down? How do you know that? How do you make that transition? It's incumbent upon you to really try to use that time well, because after a couple of hours, you're losing the jury. You're, you're totally losing the judge. And the jury will appreciate that you're done. So if you feel like you've gone through the big questions and seated all the right doubt, if you will, into the jurors, then I think it's okay to sit down. I don't think I've done a voir dire that's over three hours. And you do have to just be really cognizant of how excruciating it is to sit there and listen to other people talk for that long. So. I have a question. This doesn't necessarily apply to us per se, but the the defense has to get up and go next then, right? So you've been talking for three hours and what if you're that person on, you know, the defense attorney, how do you approach that? The first thing they always say is, I'm not going to be as long as Miss Gunn. <laughs> and number one, it's true. But number two, they just like put that out of their mind. Like I will not be standing here three hours. You know, some of them are kind enough to say she's asked a lot of the same questions I would ask, but not many of them say that. So they set the stage really early on that it ain't going to be this bad, folks. Stay right. with me. I'm not <laughs> as long winded as that lady right. over there. So just <laughs> and they appeal to, you know, their job that they have to do for their client. I know this has been a long afternoon. There's no way I'm going to be as long as Miss Gunn. But Dr. You know, Marcus right here. We're here to fight for his, you know, and then you get on your soapbox a little bit and you understand why I have to ask you these questions. So that's the way it almost always starts out. It's like, at least I ain't going to be Amy Gunn today. And <laughs> most people are like, okay, whew, good. <laughs> Although you've just done all the work that they would have done. And you know, right. And never right. get credit for yeah, it. As you asked questions, they were yeah. checking things off their list. Yes. That's right. Ladies, thank you so much for this discussion on our substantive voir dire questions and techniques. I have really enjoyed it. I will say again, it makes me long for the day when I get to do one of these again. I know that Erica and Mary are maybe getting close to one, so maybe we'll get to talk about that at some point. But otherwise, thanks for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. And ladies, don't forget to check out the Simon Law Firm's other podcast called The Jury is Out for more courtroom stories and tips. It doesn't just talk about voir dire. It really covers a lot of great topics ranging from opening statements to the importance of your reputation, especially in the legal community, and how to gain the jury's trust. And that podcast is hosted by my dad, John Simon, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. I've listened to all of them myself, and I've learned a lot of great tactics to help me kind of strengthen my practice and learn great skill sets to carry with me the rest of my career. So thank you for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Please visit us at our website, heelsinthecourtroom.law. You can look us up there and learn more about us or email us. We'd be more than happy to hear from you. Then we'll see you next time. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.